Hit Rap on BFBS. Dash, can it be beaten? That's the real message from Paris. What happens next when Dash is on the run? How do you keep the peace? Next week, the long-awaited Strategic Defence and Security Review. Who will get what and who won't? And could cyber attacks bring Britain to a standstill inside three days? Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. Friday the 13th, terror attacks in Paris were followed up by increased French bombing of IS targets in Syria. In London, the Prime Minister told the House of Commons that Britain does not need the UN's approval to join that bombing campaign. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me now. Christopher, on the ground in Paris and Brussels, the search goes on for those responsible. That's right. In Paris, this morning, the um, French prosecutor... Uh, seems to have cleared at one point. Abdel Hamid Aboud, who was the guy that supposedly organised the uh, last Friday's attacks, they believe they've got him now. He was one of the bodies in the apartment block uh, that they hit yesterday. So that's one part of it cleared up. The other side of it is not so easy to, to get to, and that is that the French uh, security service now suspects that there could be a chemical and biological uh, group hiding out somewhere. This third group we've This heard third about. group, but it, the, it, the important thing, chemical and biological. Mm. Now, the thing you to remember here is that even for the people that have got the stuff, chemical and biological weapons are so impossible to handle with any safety. So, you know, take it with, take it with ease, but the point is they're thinking that seriously. And they're thinking that seriously because they're covering bets for everything else indeed. Mm. Um, the other part of it, which is interesting, if you go to Brussels... Um, you were seeing an increase, apparently, an increase in the budgets for uh, security systems and the police systems. Now, you won't believe this, but Brussels, with a population of, what, 1.8 million, mm. it's got six large police forces. Six? Uh, six. And one of the problems that six large police forces do not talk to each other. Like the Italians, with their variety of different sorts of police, some armed, some not, some That's right. protecting some areas, some not. That's right. And like the American uh, American intelligence agencies, yeah. 14 agencies, not talking to each other because they don't trust each other with the information. But they don't talk to each other, and that's one of the reasons they, they, the Belgians are now admitting that they have a problem with the formation of, uh, of terrorist groups that can move anywhere throughout the continent. But that is supposed to be, they're trying to get their act together uh, act together on that so far they're not doing it by the way it was interesting I don't know if you saw or noticed that the group that went in to hit that house in Paris the, mm. the apartment was Rudd yeah um, Rudd is the I suppose at the top end of the SWAT teams in the French police only about a hundred uh, people in there and really good but guess what their budget is being cut well it was being cut will it be cut now uh, I don't think it'll be cut anymore. They may not lose the money, but they're not getting any more people. Now, that's the difficulty that, that they'll sort out later. Let's move on now uh, to talk about the, the plot, as it were, the other side of this. This attack on Paris has 
force the French hand, as it were. They've stepped up their attack uh, uh, over Syria. Talk to us about the assets we have there on that military plot with Syria. Um, The most important part of the military plot is the fact that it's mixed up. Mm. Uh, The French have just sent the Charles de Gaulle from Toulon. It'll be there sort of uh, Friday, Saturday. Uh, uh, The Royal Navy has got a Type 45 that's supposed to be working with the... HMS Defender, that is. Well, Defender, yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure about this. A Type 45 is air defence. ISIS don't have an aircraft, but that's something they'll sort out later. Uh, But people that are quite interesting is the Russians have moved in with one of their Moskva, uh, uh, class vessels, and that's going to work with the Charles de Gaulle anyway. Uh, and the Americans and the Turks are doing something about closing the border, the last sort of 60 miles of the border. Um, and that's going to mean boots on the ground. That's going to be interesting to see whose boots they are. It certainly will be. Well, in this atmosphere that defence ministers across Europe are contemplating a coordinated attack on what they're beginning to believe is a beatable IS. A little earlier on, I spoke to Major General Jonathan Shaw, former Assistant Chief of the Defence Staff. A military campaign is only as useful as the political plan it's meant to enable, and it's the lack of a coherent political plan uh, to deal with ISIS that has uh, completely hampered the... uh, Uh, military campaign that the uh, US-led coalition is meant to have been fighting. You you can't even work out who's on the Allied side yet. You know, are the Turks on our side or are they not? Are the Saudis on our side or not? It's all very messed at the political level. And until you've got clarity at the political level, then no wonder the military level uh, isn't very coherent or doesn't achieve its objectives. You've seen how political decisions flow down or not, and you've seen how military decisions are made on the back of them or not. The question now, I suppose, is what would you do to sort out ISIS? (laughs) Um, Well, I I do think that uh, the sooner we start bombing Syria, the better. Uh, And yes, bombing won't make a significant difference in terms of the numbers because the Americans and other people are doing an awful lot of heavy lifting anyway. But it would give... Critically, it would add credibility to David Cameron's argument. And and when he stands up at the forthcoming conference, when he argues quite rightly for political settlement on this. Uh, The second point that I'd urge is is that in that settlement, we recognise that... We recognise that uh, ISIS are the big challenge to every state, and we need to therefore bury our interstate rivalries uh, and just deal with ISIS. And then we can sort out... Uh, our interstate problems, because ISIS are a threat to all states. And even Turkey and Saudi Arabia must start to recognise this. You've advocated extending the British bombing campaign to include Syria. But what happens then? If that's successful, where do we go from there? Because we've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq the first time round, as it were, a, a complete lack of strategy for dealing with the peace. What military assets would you use to build that peace? Would British boots go on the ground? What are your thoughts there? Um, well, you're absolutely right. Air campaigns on their own don't achieve much. They can uh, destroy things, uh, kill people and break things, but they can't create. And that's the real problem that we face, is that even if we put British troops on the ground, you know, who are they supporting? Where's the political plan? What is the, the politics? And that's, you know, until you have an answer to that, I'd be very loath to put British troops on the ground precisely because uh, there's nothing for them to enable. You know, the British soldier would get there and say, what am I here to do? Um, uh, very hard to see unless there is some political goal for them to aim at that everyone's agreed on uh, then uh, I don't think we should be putting British troops on the ground
Major General Jonathan Shaw speaking to me earlier on. Christopher Lee, give us a minute's worth of the wiring diagram of the command and organisation that you think we, the West, the coalition, need to tackle IS properly. OK, you have two major commands. The one is probably have to be an American commander because they would have the most assets and the most interests in this. You split those up in subordinate commands, the, the, the Navy, the Army and the Air Forces. Um, and then a sub-command which deals with the rest of the area where you've got people like ISIS, which could go as far down as Nigeria, certainly sub, sub-Saharan Africa. thing is, you've got the Air Force, which is, has an obvious uh, role. The Navy has an obvious role, but you don't often think about it, and that's the fact that they can fire, they can fire missiles and also they can fly, uh, fly, fly aircraft. The Army is a less obvious role because it's not mass forces. It is, it is probably special forces, etc. The biggest problem here is this. ISIS is not a state. Therefore, it fades, it gets out of the way. How do you catch up with this? So there, you have the biggest asset you would have, and this is a, quite a separate intelligence organisation which is feeded into the central command. Easy peasy. <laughs> you made it sound, sir. It was very interesting. But we talk about winning the war, don't we? Winning against terrorism. But American-led coalitions that we've seen fighting together in the past decade or so, Iraq, Afghanistan, they have an unenviable trademark, as it were, that when they finish the war, they pull out quickly or over a slower period of time but the result is the same it appears there's no one left there to manage the peace well let's talk to Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies, he's at the University of Bradford, Paul Rogers thanks for joining us, tell us why haven't these coalitions ever managed the peace properly? I think essentially because we're dealing with problems which aren't amenable to military solutions in the first place Uh, I mean the real quandary have at present with the Paris attack and the earlier attack on the the Russian jet and, and elsewhere uh, are that ISIS itself actually wants war. It actually wants to be attacked. And much of this is provocation. Uh, it sees itself and presents itself very perversely as the true guardian of, of true Islam against attacks by the Crusaders, and they sometimes throw in the Zionists as well. It's something which is abhorred and uh, disliked intensely by the overwhelming majority of the world, 1.1 billion Muslims, but a few will latch onto it. And we had the extraordinary situation in the last, what, 15 months that the coalition has hit 16,000 targets in Iraq Mm. and Syria, killed about 20,000 people, yet in the same time, the number of people going to join ISIS from abroad has gone up from 15 to 30,000. And so the real problem is whether it can actually be beaten even in the first place by military means, let alone then try and build the peace afterwards. I think we're going to have to do some quite serious rethinking. Absolutely, and as Christopher was alluding to earlier on, Paul, um, even if you get the territory back that ISIS call their caliphate in Syria and Iraq, they will exit from there. We've got, one, the job of then establishing some sort of governance in that territory, but then, B, the second job of going to wherever ISIS end up next. That's right, and they may well, in fact, never go away, so to speak. Mm. In other words, there will be elements there, and you'll get essentially what happened in Iraq between 2003-2005. Now, you then had, between 2004 and 7 this very expensive use of special forces, uh, JSOC, Task Force 145, and the rest, which appeared to knock out the heart of the most uh, bitter, brutal part of the insurgency. What we now know is, in spite of maybe 4,000 being killed and many detained, much of modern-day ISIS grew out of that, which is why they have some of the best... Uh, most able paramilitaries, the ones most difficult to counter, because these people have been trained against, you know, the U.S. Special Forces, the SAS and the rest, and survived. And so I think essentially we've got to look at it in a more broad way, that even if you actually appear to succeed, as we may well do Mm. over the next six to 12 months, any idea that that is the end of it is absolute nonsense. These people are thinking in terms of 
50 or 200 years, long beyond their own lifetimes. And I think we're having some tr- trouble getting to grips with that whole concept. Well, it's an alien concept to us in the West, to a lot it of us in, in the West, ways. isn't it? It is, in many ways. It's an eschatological, transnational revolutionary movement, the like of which you've, I cannot really think we've seen, except, obviously, to an extent, Al-Qaeda itself. Yeah. Let's put a point to both of you, gentlemen. Christopher Lee's here in the studio with us, Paul. Um, an obvious weakness to us looking in on this, bearing in mind all you've said about the difficulties and the transience of ISIS... Putting Syria back together, putting Iraq to back together needs us, the coalition, the alliance, whatever you want to call it, to be strong. And strength comes through coherence, i.e. Yeah. having a single plan, having a single leader. We've seen these discussions going on in Vienna. We don't seem to have that coming to fruition, do we? Paul Rogers? No, we don't. I mean, we've had two uh, days of discussion in Vienna, separated by a week. At least it's a step forward because you've actually had the Saudis and the Iranians working in the same room. Interestingly, the Iranians last Saturday, immediately after the uh, attack in Paris, upgraded their delegation from the deputy foreign minister to the foreign minister himself. And as Christopher was saying earlier on, you know, more and more countries are coming to realize that this is a common problem. And the Iranians now, I think, are getting almost as worried as some of the Western states are. The real problem, though, behind all of this, of course, is the long-standing... I would have to say animosity between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and that's the most difficult one to crack in many ways, even worse than the older animosity between the Russians and the West, which I think is easing now on this issue. Yes, it does appear to be, doesn't it? Christopher Lee, your thoughts on this need for a single coherent strategy from the alliance? I mean, Paul makes a point about the Saudis and the Iranians being in the same room. Saudis, Sunni, Shia are Iranians. That is quite an achievement to begin yeah. with. But that's got a lot to do with the fact that they got a nuclear, uh, a nuclear deal with, with Iran uh, in, 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 early in the year. But you've only got to look what's happening at the moment with the Americans and the Turks having to get closer together to seal up one part of the problem, and that is the border issue, and also where do Americans park, that park their land-based uh, air- aircraft. The other thing we're watching at the moment is, is France and Russia closing up getting close because they've got assets in the present mood of France. They know that they will park them on the border of Syria. They mm-hmm. go for the same t- targets with the same sort of attitudes, etc. What's fascinating is the United Kingdom. Uh, the United Kingdom is sort of looking around saying, me too. There is a sense that David Cameron doesn't want Libya to happen again, i.e. Yeah. he goes in on the, to- uh, the coattails of the suckers, as he, as, he, as he then did. He wants a major role in this. And when he gets up in Parliament and says, you know, we don't have to wait for the United Nations, I think this, well, I can hear Tony Blair saying yeah. in 2003. Yeah. Well, the other thing, you mentioned Libya, Christopher. Well, there's an awful lot of IS-affiliated people controlling two major cities in Libya at this moment. That needs sorting. But there's so much that needs to be sorting on this. But we've got plenty more to come. Still to come on the programme, could a cyber attack bring the UK to a standstill in as little as three days? This is BFBS SIGREP. Yes, it is Syria with Christopher Lee and me, Tim Cooper, and Paul Rogers on the line as well. Let's move on to our next topic now. The future of British defence will be revealed on Monday when the Strategic Defence and Security Review is published. It's that time again. So what can we expect? Well, our reporter James Hurst has spoken to Professor Michael Clark, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute in Westminster. He says it's going to be very different from last time. The SDSR of 2010 was all based on having to face a financial crisis at the time. Since then, 
two things have happened. One is that that 2010 review has drifted off course, so we're not going to get to Future Force 2020 in the way it was envisaged in 2010, but this year the government has committed more money to defence. We're not entirely certain yet how that will work out. But this SDSR will not be about cuts. It will really about be about consolidation, in a way about getting the 2010 review back on track. The government won't say that because they'll want it to look very different and new and they'll try and pick out headlines. But I think the analysts amongst us will be looking to see whether it gets the 2010 review back on track and that we are now on course for more or less what we're going to have by 2020. So what are the cold, hard, practical decisions that this review has to take? I think the two biggest decisions that the review will take, certainly on equipment, is whether to restore a maritime patrol aircraft. And the question will be whether to buy the P-8, which is this very good but very expensive American aircraft. And if we have them, we have to have at least eight or nine of them if we're to do maritime patrol deep into the North Atlantic, which we do if we think that the Russians and Russian submarines are the real threat. That's one big question. The second big question is what numbers of F-35s, the Lightning II fighter, should we have, which is... Um, connected to the question of the second carrier. Are we confirming that we're going to operate two aircraft carriers? If so, how many aircraft do we require and how many does the RF have to have? Again, the F-35 is a very expensive aircraft. It's very capable. And behind that is a question of whether we actually can use the F-35 up to its full capabilities because it's not clear that we have all of the other things you need to have on the ground in order to make the F-35 the most effective aircraft in the air. Second big question there. Third big question, really, is the, the size of the army and how the army shall restructure itself for divisional-level operations. And that's a bit of a piece of string. A division can be either quite small or it can be quite large. And that is an ongoing tough question, which is about personnel, numbers and equipment. The financial position. Actually, Defence has been handed this uh, commitment to growth of at least half a percent in real terms, uh, plus a pot of money to bid from to meet the 2%. Sounds like a lot, is it? The commitments that the government made during the election campaign, which they're now being held to, were greater than I think any of us expected. And so there is more cash for defence, and the government has committed to 2% of the GDP, of our GDP being spent on defence, which might turn out to be quite a lot of cash if GDP rises in the next five years, which it might. Um, all of that sounds better than the alternative, which was cuts. But in reality, the money that we're talking about at the moment will probably only be enough to restore what was in the, in the plan in 2010. What, what, I don't see any huge new capabilities, maybe some in cyber, but no other huge, huge new capabilities being created by the money that's been allocated to defence that, that we didn't expect. I mean, both the Treasury and the Defence Secretary are talking about the need for efficiency in defence still. Uh, is there scope for efficiency? in defence to, to actually come up with some of the money to deliver those frontline capabilities. The problem with efficiency is that efficiency savings can always be found because normally it's a sleight of hand in the accounting procedures. Certain things are delayed, certain things are accounted for in different ways. All organisations can find one or two or three percent efficiencies for many years at a time and it doesn't often make that much difference to the, to the overall budget. But what is important in defence is this control of big projects. The government, the Treasury certainly 
have decided that the Ministry of Defence is still not buying its big equipment efficiently enough. And that really is about procurement. It's about the, the, the big ticket items, so the successor to Trident, the, the, um, the contracts that they have for things like the F-35, for any new the Type 26 uh, ships and so on. It, the, there is a sense that the MOD still is not good enough at dealing with very big contracts. And if there is scope for efficiency, that is where it is. Not in the day-to-day -day running, not in the way the armed forces spend their money on military bands or whatever else. That's what people look at. The real scope is in how and how much equipment we buy. There we go. That was Professor Michael Clark from the Royal United Services Institute talking to James Hurst on SDSR. Christopher Lee, Professor Paul Rogers listening to this. Christopher, first of all, um, I was here five years ago for the last SDSR. This feels... So different, doesn't it? Very different feeling of tone. Yeah, it's different of tone. Two things, two things strike me. One is the introduction of something called, or, or being more aware of something like Major Projects Authority, which is within the Treasury and the MOD and the Defence Equipment and Support System. Now, that will take care of a lot of things like this, and you might things going, find things going into different budgets. So that circumvents things, doesn't that it? That circumvents things, and it makes it much easier. And when people talk about uh, efficiency, for example, it depends whose judgments you're talking about and whether you understand, for example, that inflation takes pa place at a different pace than it does in normal life. Yeah. But the most important thing, to my mind, or, or the thing I pick up, I've been watching these things for, I don't know, 20 years or so. 30. Is this the... F eh? 30 years? No, it must be. That's inflation. Yeah. The, the, the one thing I notice, in every time we've had a defence budget, the armchair generals, admirals and air marshals, have been wheeled out and start moaning, you know, the Navy goes on, we've only got six 16-inch guns left in mm. the Navy, the RF, we can't fend off the Americans, and, 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 and the Army say, we don't know how we're going to do this job. You haven't heard them this time. No, they've been very quiet, haven't it's they? It's been very quiet. Yeah. Nobody's, nobody's pushing them out. And, and that says to me that the Chiefs of Staff Corridor is actually quite satisfied yeah, what they're yeah. probably going to get, and you probably won't get anything more than the mock tears by Monday evening. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Professor Paul Rogers, the University of uh, Bradford, still on the line with me. And I suppose part of the, the thinking behind this SDSR is the change dynamic we've seen in the world, because the last one, 2010, we're approaching drawdown from Afghanistan. That's the immediate thought. We're drawing down from Germany and so on and so forth, major reorganisation. But the world's changed beyond all recognition since then. Who'd have thought of IS, Syria, all of that? Russia? It's changed. Absolutely, yes. It, it has changed a huge amount, and in some ways it's gone back to the uncertainty and turmoil of, of uh, five years ago, unexpectedly. I suppose there are two things about the SDSR which I would like to see, but I will not see. The first is a real review. It's meant to be a review. A review of what actually went wrong and why. And I'm afraid it won't contain that. And the other thing is, if we're looking longer term, the next 5, 10, 15 years, without question now... Uh, the biggest worldwide security issue will be climate disruption. Uh, now, this is meant to be an SDSR, Strategic Defence and Security Review. If it doesn't say something about that, I think it should go back to the drawing board. Well, this week, the Chancellor, George Osborne, will announce that the Government Communications Headquarters, GCHQ, will be getting an extra £1.9 billion budget. Monitoring and listening to threats against USA security and particularly cyber attacks have become one of the biggest items in the SDSR we've been talking about there. Uh, British defence and security systems are now hacked into almost 100 times a month. Professor Paul Rogers, an organised hacking ring. I mean, we've seen the Hollywood films, but could it actually bring the UK to a standstill in under a week? 
It possibly could. Uh, the only thing you can say is that all the different agencies that are involved with overseeing critical infrastructure are hugely aware of this. And there are far more complicated and complex backup systems than you would have had uh, 10 or even five years ago. That doesn't mean that one should in any way rest assured, uh, because in the past we've had experiences which are not cyber-related. For example, the provisional IRA's uh, economic targeting of London, what, 15 years ago, which is designed to make it difficult for London to compete with Frankfurt. Initially, that caused huge problems, but to some extent was eventually brought out under control. The real thing is it's very difficult to tell just how capable really experienced and determined hackers could be. But I think one has to be a little bit cautious about saying, you know, the, the sky is about to fall in. Mm. There is one thing, though, Christopher Lee, about this. Is it not a time to with, withdraw, retreat, as it were, from our intelligence filing, as, it, as you could call it, from the computer world and start typing it again? Uh, I would have thought you could ask the, the, the private mind to be able to do that, but you can't change the system because there's too much too much cross flow between well, organisations. But I tell you, you don't have to get into the whole defence thing. Um, almost everything we do now is computer controlled. For example, a, a supermarket it restocks yeah. its 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 shelves from how much has gone off the shelves by computers. You could close down the fuel available for tankers for uh, private cars, etc. You could close that down in two and a half days. That was an exercise at Easy More some years ago, but it's now projected at, at, at two and a half days. You could actually foul up hospital systems. You could foul up sort of uh, the supplies of blood. The, uh, all the ambulance services rely on computer programming, and you can mess that up for three quarters of the day. Now, you imagine what happens in just three quarters of the day. That's compounded then. Mm-hmm. What you do is not so much bring in bringing the whole of the missile system or the Air Force or Navy or whatever to, to a standstill. You're bringing uh, a private life, society, to a standstill or, or disrupting it. Do you remember about five, six years ago when you couldn't get or you thought you might not be able to get petrol, oh, yeah. diesel, keys around the stations, block. Yeah. keys around the block, people getting, you know, it's the beginning of road angst, yeah. etc. Et you disrupt society. When you disrupt society, that is when the government strikes. Right. Let's. Um, you mentioned their fuel, and I think that's quite a useful thing for us to move on to, because next month world leaders are going to gather in Paris to pledge what they're going to do about climate change. Um, Paul Rogers, climate change, I suppose resource pressure would be perhaps a better way of putting it as well, because the two are interlinked. Is that a bigger threat to world security than ISIS even? Oh, in the longer term, I think without doubt. Um what it might spawn, of course, is much more dangerous circumstances in which, in which you get different kinds of, if you like, revolts from the margins. But essentially, I think we're now slowly but surely recognizing this. One of the problems is that for natural cause reasons, there has been a period over the last five years when a, a sort of a cyclic tendency to cool has actually slightly moderated the underlying increase in temperatures. That has changed. It's changed in the last year or two partly because of the nature of the southern oscillation in the Pacific. And we're now actually seeing a combination of the two, synergistic, which is why almost certainly 2015 is going to be the warmest year recorded since effective recording began nearly 100 years ago. The thing is accelerating, and it is also deeply asymmetric. I suppose the biggest single issue is that climate change is going to lead to relatively greater warming and drying out right across the north tropics into the north subtropical zone, including uh, much of the Amazonian rainforest, but particularly the whole of North Africa through the Middle East through to Central Asia, South Central Asia. 
the impact on basically the carrying capacity of the land to grow crops will be huge if we don't actually get a grips with it. So I think, you know, there is time, another five or ten years, but if we don't get a grips with it, when frankly uh, ISIS will look like a minor inconvenience in 10 or 15 years' time. Christopher Lee, do you agree? Yeah, I do. I mean, if you, if you, if you consider, and forget the time periods, because the time periods are misleading sometimes in what happens, we have doubled the CO2 output into the atmosphere. That's not all wrong because we actually need CO2 in the, mm. in the atmosphere and it comes down and it, it does all sorts of jobs. But the land is heating up and therefore you will start to get the melting of permafrosts. When you land... When you, uh, well, and that's that, starting, isn't it? Already? That's starting yeah. already. And so if you take, for example, uh, that the, the Russia has perhaps the biggest oil reserves in the world under permafrost, which you can't get at the moment, you start to change how the world starts to operate. But I think the biggest problem will be the disruption of societies... And people will start to migrate, and they will migrate to places that they, they're not welcome. And we're actually seeing something like that happening at the moment, just with the war in, uh, in Syria. At the moment, there are 60 million people displaced in the world. Now, if you can imagine some forecasts, we're talking about five, six, seven times, nobody really knows, mm. of people being displaced. What do you do? That displaces your ideas of what society can do, where it's got the money, where it puts the money, and how its security apparatus is concerned. And other people, as we're seeing at the moment, in Europe, for example, start to retrench. They yeah. start to put up the barbed wire. That is a huge security conundrum. Well, we could see the, the area between the two tropics just becoming unlivable. Worst case scenario, potentially. But anyway, uh, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thanks ever so much again for joining us once more on SITREP, an invaluable contribution from you as well. Christopher, too, thanks very much. Final one-sentence thought on all we've seen this last week. It's been a big week. Big week. We're talking ISIS. Where is Al-Qaeda, then? They've been left behind, haven't they? That is the remarkable thing about ISIS on so many levels. Al-Qaeda, I promise gone. you, is the far bigger threat than ISIS is today. We'll have to talk about that next week because we're out of time this week. We'll see what Christopher can do when he elucidates on that more. But for now, from all of us here, thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll be back very soon for me, Tim Cooper, and the Sitrep team. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.